0: Spotlight brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council.
1: Good afternoon friends, Nolik Gennal and welcome along to the Spotlight Review of the Year 2021. presenter today i hear you ask it's me sarah hendy a surprise for us all i'm sure we've had a rather topsy-turvy year here on spotlight so today i bring you the best of the bunch i'm sure we all remember how in the earlier part of the year we had a whole host of online events to enjoy while things found their way back to normal in the spring as things started to pick up again christy met bunch of skankers We have three of the bunch of skankers with us I'm going to
2: let you each introduce yourself So from the left Hi, I'm Trey
3: Hello,
4: I'm Chas I'm Andy
2: It is so lovely to have you here I just discovered Andy Yes You lot, despite the fact that you are One of the biggest and best bands on the island One of You ain't never done radio before as the skankers
4: Nobody's ever asked us
0: Never
2: No Oh dear, do I need to worry? Is there a reason why you've not been asked before? We like
4: the anonymity (laughs)
2: When did and how did The Skankers come to be then?
4: Trey and I are partners in life as well as in the band. Aww. We came back to the island in 2000 and uh, very shortly after I was asked to join a band called Still Crazy and uh, and in that band we had two halves of the set. The first half was a sort of rocky kind of thing and the second half was more sort of new wave and we did some madness and specials tracks thrown in. And uh, We did that for about seven years and then in 2007 was skankers debut and uh, and we decided that we would do the the scar the two-tone all that bouncy stuff and uh, and another section of that previous band still crazy went off and did the rock half so we had a band that was split into two bands and uh, and both did pretty well uh so 14 years ago is when skankers started
5: wow
4: Was that first Skankers gig. was at Bushy's Basement Bar. I believe it was Bushy's Basement Bar for Phil Madrill's birthday. Yeah. Good oh, old Phil. Yeah. We
2: miss both of them, the yes. Basement Bar Absolutely. and Phil. Certainly. Very much so. Certainly. So, Trey, give us the full lineup now then. So, the full lineup now is Andy, Chaz, myself, and then we've got Keith So on guitar, uh, Gus on bass, and marky Mark on drums. And it is. Just so much fun, isn't it? I mean, is is it fun for you guys on stage as it is for us watching?
4: We wouldn't do it otherwise.
0: I've forgotten a member. <gasps> <gasps> Ross. Yeah, there is one. Oh, there is on one, on other, one other. Member. One other
4: occasional member who uh, should be listening in Russia. Hello, if you're watching on the internet, Ross. Hey, Ross. Our son Ross, who plays yeah. trombone. Who you, you, of course, know, Christy.
2: Yes, and is a little star. Hello to Ross, yeah. if you are listening. But he's
4: uh, he's rarely here these days, so. Um, yeah. We so you,
2: t- did, did you breed him up to be a Scar member <laughs> no
4: it took a long time for me to talk him into it to be fair <laughs> uh, he started out playing trombone with onk and silver band and uh, and then he went to university rncm in manchester and it was when he was coming back during his sort of uh, breaks from uni that he would join us for a little bit
2: and he said he was a uh, in Royal College of Music, does that mean he's he the was. only trained musician? Absolutely. <laughs> <Yes>. Absolutely.
4: He's, <laughs> the only musician. he's the only musician, musician. full <laughs> stop. <Yeah.
2: laughs> what is it about Scar? Because it just has this way, like I said, of just boosting your mood, doesn't it? That's it. It's just dead so happy, isn't it? You've answered your it? own question. I have. I don't need you lot. No,
4: we can go home.
2: <laughs> I do need you lot because I want to know. And <laughs> Do you know where Scar began then where it originated?
4: Well, Scar is from Jamaica. Um and it it developed from uh, out of Mento, which is a Jamaican folk music, which itself will have developed from the influx of Africans brought there against their will, shall we say. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so Scar developed in about the fift, late 50s, 60s or so. Uh, I've got to say, there's probably some real Scar fans listening who know a lot more about this than I do. But it's, yeah, like you say, it's uh, it's... It's really happy, sort of, you know, bouncy stuff. It's got a, especially the old, the old tracks like this, like Lord Tanamo, you just played. Uh, just got a great feel. Um, good to play, good to dance to.
2: Talking about how a Scar is and how it makes you feel. So, were you all fans of Scar before you were in Bunch of Skankers?
3: Oh, yeah, very much. It was, um, it was just different, you know, when, when two, it, for me, it's two tone. You know, I, I discovered Scar from the two-tone, the you know, the second wave of Scar, if you like. You know, I, you know, there's it just it all changed in 1979. You know, it was um, it was you know, Frank Sinatra or ballads or rock, and suddenly there was something new, something different, and it it just. Grabs you by the ear.
2: Um, So, Trey, one of the things I love about you guys, and it's sort of reflected in the music as well, your performances are so bouncy and so energetic. It must be pretty exhausting, though. Well, I'd like to say, yeah, thank you. It's dead exhausting, but I think Andy's the main bouncy one. (laughs) I think
4: you'll find that I'm the exhausted one. (laughs) All they do is standing around. Christy with the bunch of
6: skankers there. Careful how you say that. Now... We don't often feature jazz on Spotlight but there is a jazz scene on the island and one man is looking to build on it is legal sax man and connoisseur of all things beery Jerry Carter who dropped into the station to tell me about a new jazz club in Port Erin
7: We were approached by Pip Rolfe to expand the repertoire within the Erin Arts Centre which I must say is a fantastic little venue it's wonderful great. Um, and his idea is to have a jazz club either quarterly or every two months and have different jazz bands to help to get the, the big swing band down. So we're doing the launch on Saturday the 29th um, with the Blue Van in Jazz Band. And obviously we're delighted after lockdown to actually get playing get out again. again. But to get playing in your first venue is the Air and Arts Centre is rather like hitting the jackpot a little bit. It's a lovely venue. So we're really looking forward to it.
6: For those who I think might know the name or they don't know the sort of material, what sort of stuff are you playing?
7: It's quite eclectic. We'll be doing some Sonny Rollins, Herbie Hancock, uh, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, that type of stuff. So we've got a bit of a range. And a few old, I think we're doing, trying to do Take the A Train as well. Oh, even oh. like, so plenty of stuff
6: people will recognise. Yep. Uh, the lineup currently?
7: Lineup is Steve Hind, lead tenor, myself playing tenor, um, Steve Gray, keyboards, Alan Pressford, on bass, Jim Horton drumming and Jackie Murray grace is back with us playing trombone.
6: So really nice. I know the last time I saw you were in the uh, Peel Centenary Centre and making a great sound there. It's going to appeal to anyone. Anyway. What's the uh, sort of setup then? Is it going to be set-up as a jazz club or is it going to be more in a concert arena?
7: Well, we've decided to set it up as a jazz club and take the stadium seating out and put mm-hmm. tables and chairs in. We have a, an occasional licence with the Bay Hotel, so um, there'll be lots of Free-flowing jazz and free-flowing bushes beer in the evening. <laughs> Not sure which I prefer, really.
6: <laughs> a bit of both. Bit of both. A bit it has both. to be a mix. And you say you're hoping, with Pip and, uh, and the centre down there, this is hoping to be, as you say, sort of a club-type scenario on a regular basis.
7: Yeah, it's um, either quarterly or once every two months, depending on how it goes and what the demand's like. Um, and we're hoping that we can get other. Uh, there the are other jazz bands on the island, and rather than us all the time. We'd like it mixed up so that Pip's getting other bands. We'd look. We'd love to see a big band in there. I think it would lend itself to it.
6: That would be much. terrific, wouldn't it? So that is the scenario because it, it's that type of music, yeah. isn't it? With a sort of jamming and uh, improvisation and, and jazz, yeah. it's a great idea if people come along and they can have a play, or indeed, like you say, mix it up and have a, some other bands playing there as well.
7: Yeah, Th- that's the intention. I think terrific. So. EAC
6: Jazz Club happening once like I said maybe a month a quarter and again you can get the tickets now from the uh, online from the Aeron Art Center Jerry Carter and Blue Vannon I do hope the EAC Jazz Club takes off do support it and Jerry has exciting plans for the Manx jazz scene in general watch this space.
1: Thank you, Christy and Howard. In the summer, the Manx Museum brought us the long-awaited retrospective of artist Kevin Atherton. I spoke to his friend and contemporary Ian Coulson. Ian, you and Kevin studied under Norman Sale together at the Old Art School on Kensington Road, I believe, so you must go back a long way.
3: Yeah, if you go into the main gallery in the museum, you can see us both posing in a photograph of long ago with Martin Hearn. Martin's the good looking one. <laughs> Kevin described us as rock and roll flaneurs. The flaneurs are sort of literary type from 19th century France, and the word carries a set of rich associations. The man of leisure, the idler, the urban explorer, the connoisseur of the street, Strand Street. So perhaps on the island, we might be considered to be stravegas, or as we as art students might have said, Strand Streeters.
1: I like that. It's a good phrase you coined there. And um, you did your foundation course together here on the island with Norman Sale, I believe. But then you went away to study. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. We went off to art school in the UK. Kevin went to Leeds, me to Loughborough and Mick Duckworth to Brighton at the same time. And we spent the next three years really connected at weekends by the great river of the M1. (laughs) Hitchhiking was universal. All students did it. All squaddies did it. I can still feel the damp cold and my bones are being stranded for hours near Sheffield when Kevin and I were trying to hitch to Leeds for a Ted Hughes reading.
1: Oh my goodness. Um, It sounds as though you and Kevin and Mick were really firm friends then.
3: Yeah, yeah. um, It's interesting. If you look at pages 72 and 73 of the exhibition catalogue, it shows the artist's forearms Kevin, Mick and I went into a non-too-clean tattooist shop in Leicester in 1969 to get three-legs tattoos. You know, the mark of Manx's male virility from time immemorial. Kevin was first, Mick was second, and the drawing wasn't getting any better. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't put up with someone else's indifferent drawing on my arm for the rest of my life. It has to be said, though, that Kevin's has aged in wonderfully well, and take, taken together with his signature on the other forearm, it said a lot about identity and origin at a time when only seamen and jailbirds were tattooed.
1: Yeah, I think you must be right, and um, it's it's interesting that Kevin sees his everyday actions as a nineteen-year-old capable of becoming subject matter for making art.
3: Well, yeah, because. Kevin was at the forefront of several enduring facets of contemporary British art, particularly in performance art, where the artists use their body as a direct engagement with the audience, often in challenging and unexpected ways and when just about anything could happen, perhaps because of the sort of ephemeral immaterial nature of performance kevin was amongst the first two to use the emerging technologies and i mean emerging you know it was it was utterly brand new of of video and he made sort of performance films
1: i imagine all art students would have had cameras at that kind of time wouldn't they so what was what was so different about what the teenage atherton was doing
3: Yeah, and at the time I already had access to a pretty flashy Super 8 movie camera, and I remember a conversation with Kevin when he asked my advice as to which one he should buy. Now, my interest in making films of the world, I suppose, related to the cinematic or to painting, for instance, I loved the saturated colours of Kodachrome film. Kevin didn't want any of this. His parameters were simple, he wanted black and white, he wanted standard 8, he wanted fixed focus, you switched it on or off, you stick it on a tripod and it's cheap. He didn't want a box of photographic trickery, he wanted a real-time recording device.
1: Uh, I see what you're saying, so he didn't want that seductive imagery, he didn't want anything to detract from the idea or concept of the film.
3: Yeah, Kevin was already dealing with time and space amongst his main materials, and as I say, he was into performance, whereas I would run a mile rather than be the subject of my work. I still hold to the idea that any artwork that I made didn't need me there at all. The work should stand entirely for itself. Even now, I rarely sign anything. Occasionally, I am asked, did you do this, Coulson? So Kevin was experimenting with the potential of performance art. He was creating liminal spaces in which anything could happen. It was challenging and it was edgy and I found some of the outcomes often really unsettling. In the works and the book of the exhibition there's a photograph of a naked performance that he did at Butler's Wharf in London so it may have been from that but I think it was in Germany that one of Kevin's naked performance was actually featured in Studio International and that was like the bible of contemporary art criticism that avidly read by all of us and and Kevin was coming home on the boat, and by um, uh, by chance he met Norman Sale in the sea terminal. He was there meeting somebody else. And in this characteristic, uh, ribald manner, Norman pipes up to the shocked ears of those assembled. Oh, hello, Kevin. I didn't recognize you with your clothes on.
5: <laughs> cheeky rascal.
3: <laughs> so anyway, um, after my sculpture degree, I spent a year in Leeds doing a postgrad art teaching qualification. Kevin must periodically have still been there, I can't remember now. But what I do remember vividly is coming across a section of dirty old red brick wall in a back lane in which every brick had been cancelled with a bright, sharp, white chalk cross. It was amazingly visually arresting and it was so fresh within the context of its drab surroundings that I, I was sort of startled by it. And I filed it away in my head as something to use myself one day. A couple of years later, I think, and Kevin showed us some of his 8 millimeter films and there was a three-minute film of Kevin drawing chalk crosses on a wall.
1: Oh my God, no way. That must have been a, a big surprise, almost like meeting an old friend, I suppose.
3: <laughs> yeah, a real light went on in my head. And here's the philosophical conundrum. He thought that he'd taken the art away with him in his camera as a performance and happening along just after he must have packed up and, with his camera and gone, I thought that he'd left the art there on the wall. The making of the art was the subject of the film, but I'd already loved this as an art thing, whilst he'd loved it as an art process.
1: Gosh. That's fascinating. And looking in the catalogue for the exhibition, you can see that Kevin Atherton has made work in a wide variety of materials. I see stained glass church windows hanging in a forest, and I see traditional bronze figurative sculpture, quite diverse.
5: Yeah.
3: Kevin likes to celebrate real people, like commuters, and like schoolchildren, children. And he does this with the high art materials and the monumentality, more often reserved for kings or emperors on horseback. You'll see in the works, the book designed for the museum show, a sculpture of a Londoner, a lady called Joy Batic, patiently waiting for her train to come into the platform at Brixton Station in South London. The sculpture of Joy, which has waited on the platform edge with two other of Kevin's bronze commuters for 30 years, Uh, And they've recently been given listed status because of their importance to black history. Two of them are thought to be the first public sculptural representation of black British people in the UK.
1: Gosh, that's remarkable. So this is recognised as a significant historical work then.
3: Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think that it even occurred to Kevin when he was working on this commission that he was about to reveal the gaping omission of centuries of black British people whose very existence in Britain is denied or overlooked by the blindness of our recorded history.
1: A reminder that racism is very deeply ingrained in our culture.
3: Yeah, Uh, and in a delicious piece of near synchronicity, we had the toppling of Edward Colston's statue into Bristol Harbour. The historian who lives in Bristol, um, the wonderful David Olashoga, wrote in The Guardian, For people who don't know Bristol, the real shock when they heard that the statue of a 17th century slave trader had been torn from its plinth and thrown into the harbour was that 21st century Bristol still had a statue of a slave trader on public view.
1: In January this year, Oliver Dowden, the Secretary for Digital Media, Culture and Sport, has introduced protection through planning law to stop the removal of contentious statues in this way.
3: Uh, Yeah, and I very much like uh, Anthony Gormley's clever suggestion that the statue of the colonialist and white supremacist Cecil Rhodes should be turned to face the wall of Oriel College in shame. (laughs) Edward Colston, the man in question, helped to oversee the transportation into slavery of an estimated 84,000 Africans. Of them, it's believed that around 19,000 died in the stagnant bellies of the company's slave ships. The bodies of the dead were thrown overboard where they were devoured by the sharks, which over the centuries of the Atlantic slave trade had learned to seek out slave ships and follow their bloody paths across the ocean. This is mass murder here. This is the man who for 125 years has been honoured by Bristol, put literally on a pedestal in the very heart of the city. The historical symmetry of this moment, of his toppling, is poetic. A bronze effigy of an infamous and prolific slave trader is dragged through the streets of the city, built on the wealth of that trade and then dumped like the victims of the Middle Passage into the water. Now, that's an art happening of some significance in which mere statuary achieves the status of art through liminal performance. I think that Kevin and I are both on board with that one. The news photograph published the next day of a young black woman triumphant and proud standing on Colston's plinth in his place was an art moment of consummation for me.
1: Yeah, it was a really beautiful moment and... um... It's worth saying that alongside his international profile as a practising fine artist, he has had a rather illustrious teaching career, hasn't he? Kevin has held posts at the Slade, which is arguably the best art school in the world, and at the Royal College. Perhaps most notably, he was head of... The Department of Alternative Media at Chelsea College of Art, and when he moved to Dublin in 1999, Kevin be- became the inaugural head of the Fine Art Media Department at the National College of Art and Decide of Ireland. It's really quite something.
3: Yeah, it's interesting when I remember how very challenging he was as an art student. I was a course tutor for many years of the foundation course that gave birth to both of us, but I don't think I came across any students as belligerently intelligent as Kevin. He was the first artist that I knew who was prepared to start a pub fight over the form and the content of artworks. This was important stuff. I never thought to separate the two. I suppose that I imagined that the ideas embodied in the sculpture were intrinsic in its shape and materials and the processes of its making. Well, that was how I worked and I didn't feel any desire to expose or to analyse the mysterious nature of the art object
1: um something really interesting um we find an illuminating description of Kevin in 1969 uh, which appears in a book called Creative Licence by James Charnley. He was a fellow student of Kevin's, wasn't he? And he observes the early photographs of Kevin Atherton at Leeds show him as a slight long-haired youth, essentially central casting standard model for a student in 1969. His appearance was to undergo a drastic change, however, reflecting his development as an artist. He shaved off all of his hair and took to walking around around in a polo neck and loose trousers a look in almost direct opposition to the prevailing fashion i love that quote it's wonderful
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah as an aside though kevin mick and i all wore fishermen's gansies um uh, but kevin also adopted these heavy woolen seamen's trousers this was the rig that his grandfather johnny clegg who was a boatman wore indeed most men on douglas quay at that time would have been similarly attired I think as much as anything, Kevin was defining himself as a Manx artist. He was othering himself in Leeds through the way that he dressed.
1: Yes, and if we go back to Charnley, um, he says this confrontational pose was reinforced by the regular and loud use of the phrase F off to cover most occasions. He became quite unstoppable since this belligerence was supported by a loquacious intelligence and caustic observations all delivered in a broad Manx accent. Kevin did nothing to hide his working class roots and if anything, he emphasised them. He operated in a proto- punk idiom an ideal model for negotiating the tougher aspects of life in Leeds
3: you know (laughs) I remember at this time Kevin had a rubber stamp made which said in capital letters irrelevant (laughs) and he was quite prepared to stamp library books notices on the course board and indeed other students work unforgivable I wonder how many customers as difficult as he has been himself Kevin came across in his teaching career I've heard him say though that he was taken aback when he got to Leeds to find that the majority of his studio mates were not really committed to their futures as artists, whereas he was absolutely determined to make his mark.
1: Now, in this exhibition there are complex multi-screen presentations which utilise earlier video work that the young, assertive Atherton has made and with which the older artist, again to camera, interacts you think that this is a significant outcome in contemporary art, don't you, Ian? Can you, t- can you tell us why?
3: Well, yeah, I do. Yeah, I think that, that it's a wonderful, humane expression of a man's creative life that he can interact with his younger self across a life's time span. We see the older Atherton, knocked about and shaped by life's reverses in many ways, faces younger self across a dark room and 30 years of his own personal history. In the piece In Two Minds, the older Atherton takes this vivid, vehement iteration of his younger self. And from the wisdom of his years, the mature artist has a spirited conversation with his adolescent self by way of video installation.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, that only with the advent of time-based recording, this thing that has fascinated Atherton all of his life, is it possible for a man to appear to talk to his younger self? Yeah, it's
3: exciting. The mature artist holds all the cards, of course. The young artist has no idea that this is going to happen to him down the road. The The old guy knows what the young man's going to say, and life's experiences have given him a thousand shades of riposte to the young man's certainties. And, you know, it's in the kindness of the older Atherton cutting slack for his younger self that we are all of us absolved of our own follies of adolescence and I know I've got plenty of them.
1: (laughs) Um, And there's a a very interesting and involved essay in the works written in art speak, critically dealing with this piece, making detailed observations and parallels with other great works, isn't there?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I'm deeply resistant to jargon. And for me, it's in the humanity of the self-appraisal that it reminds me of nothing more than the late self-portraits of Rembrandt. Aged, alone, broke, and perhaps even a bit addled in the brain, yet supremely communicative of the human spirit. I can almost feel Atherton in sympathy with Rembrandt, musing vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council.
1: Faster my friends, you are listening to the Spotlight Review of the Year, where we are enjoying a patchwork of highlights from all four of us presenters. That's Christy, Howard, Michelle and myself, as we hopped around the island taking in the sights and sounds of our vibrant art scene. Conductor of the Isle of Man Symphony Orchestra, Morris Powell, of Thursday Evening's A Little Light Music fame, is our next guest today. He joined us at the end of June to share tales of wonder and woe from the lives of Mozart and Mendelssohn, who are the stars of the orchestra's annual summer concert. We begin with Mozart's 21st Piano Concerto.
8: First of all, there is no doubt that the experience of live music, whatever kind of music it is, from one fiddle in a in the street up to a, a massive symphony orchestra and chorus it doesn't matter the experience of live music is vital it's the missing element between composer and, and audience if you like if and, and and the and the performers if you don't if it's not live OK, um, <clears throat> about Mozart, Mozart's piano concertos, and he wrote 27 of them. Um, and I would say that probably 15 or 16 are masterpieces by anyone's standards, which means because it's Mozart, the standard is very high. Um, these are special. Um We get used to the idea of the big romantic concerto, Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, Brahms, um, as a kind of a contest, a battle between the soloist, um, who's thumping their way through... 40 minutes of music battling against a huge orchestra and in many ways that's how these works were conceived but with Mozart it's it's much more intimate Uh, we must remember that Mozart wrote these concertos nearly all of them for himself to play So he organised the concerts, he was his own entrepreneur, he wrote the music, he played the solos, he directed the concerts, he even organised the tickets and took the money at the end. Um, So he's right in the centre. Now, with the piano concertos, there's a, a unique relationship between the soloist, the pianist and the orchestra. They're much more sort of blended in with each other taking over from each other, passing the musical themes, the musical argument from one to the other in a very intimate way, like a like a conversation, the most magnificent conversation you can imagine. And I think, this, here's a little bit more difficult, people might disagree, but I think that The Mozart piano concertos, the piano part, is the closest we can get to Mozart himself, his musical personality. It's like the Bach organ works. We imagine Bach alone in his organ loft in Leipzig, just improvising these amazing things. That is the real Bach. With Mozart, the piano concertos are the real Mozart. It's it's Mozart's voice the closest that we can get to it.
1: Mendelssohn's Overture, Calm Sea and a Prosperous Voyage. What can you tell us about that piece?
8: Very unusual piece, which uh, we've never programmed before, and I can't find any record of it having been played on the island, certainly going back five decades of programs and, and news reports. Uh, it, and it's not performed as often, perhaps, as it should be. Um, it's a piece of program music. In other words, it's, it, it actually tells a story. The inspiration was... Um, two short poems by Germany's greatest poet, Goethe, um, which were based on an experience that the poet had himself of being becalmed in very dangerous waters. And then suddenly the the, the wind came and the ship was able to move forward with, with great relief. And he put all this into two very short poems, Calm Sea and Prosperous Voyage. But they're always linked together because they're very short. It would take 20 seconds to read them both. Um... They're quite evocative and they, they certainly appealed very much to the German imagination because Beethoven also was very much attracted to these two poems and he wrote a short piece for choir and orchestra based on them. But Mendelssohn had the idea that he could get the, the nub of the poem, the essence of it without the use of singers and a choir, he would just write a piece of orchestral music. And, of course, it's quite descriptive. There's a, a, a rather long, slow section, which is obviously the becalmed, um, the calm sea, um, and then there's a, a brief fluttering of wind, and then the second part, the second part of the poem, Prosperous Voyage, um, comes ahead. So there's quite a bit of of um, musical painting, if I can put it that way, of the sea, the wind... It's a wonderful piece. It's quite restrained. I mean, there are no great storms here. They're not attacked by giant squid. They're not attacked by cannibals when they land. It's, a, it's, a, it's more of a, an inward journey as well. I think this is why it appealed to composers like Beethoven, for example. There's got to be something more than just a story to get Beethoven interested, um, and with Mendelssohn as well. So it's a very interesting piece, very colourful. Um, very Mendelssohn, so if you like things like um, the Hebrides overture, um, uh, then you'll know what territory you're in. But because it's so very little known, um, I think it'll be a pleasant surprise. They're so short of actually going to print the two poems um, in the programme. So that you can just check out how well Mendelssohn did, and give him a mark at the end of the overture—maybe eight out of ten—I don't know, whatever. Um, but uh, no, it's 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 useful uh, w- when the text is so short, just to be able to refer to it, um, and uh, just to see what it was that that inspired uh, Mendelssohn to write this piece.
1: Well as a cheeky little treat I'm sure you know that um on Late Lunch Howard Kane often has you Virtual Morris as his co-host um if uh, Christie is off swimming in the sea and things
8: I've heard about this I'm I'm I'm, I'm my of course my approval <laughs> uh, was not sought and it's not been reflected in my fee by the way but, but we'll let that pass I'm, I'm not bitter or anything like that
1: well um by by way of um sort of uh, returning the favor shall we say we'll switch to virtual howard now who um i will ask to share these poems with us they are very short as you say um but he has a lovely voice for poetry so here we are virtual howard please uh please recite for us those two poems calm sea and prosperous voyage if you will
6: silence deep rules over the waters calmly slumbering lies the main while sailor views with trouble naught but one vast level plain not a zephyr is in motion silence fearful as the grave in the mighty waste of ocean sunk to rest is every wave The mist is fast clearing and radiant as heaven while Eilus loosens our anguish fraught bond. The zephyrs are sighing, alert is the sailor. Quick, nimbly be plying, the distance approaches icy land beyond.
1: Next on the agenda though... Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, Morris, how does that compare to the other two pieces? What kind of journey are we going on in this one?
6: Oh,
8: well, um, <laughs> with Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, they, certainly myself and the orchestra have been on quite a journey because um, it has a certain reputation, the Eighth Symphony, as, as being a kind of an also-ran if you think of Beethoven's symphonies as a very unruly family, most of whom are start raving mad, then the eighth, even the eighth is odd even even in that company, the eighth is an odd symphony i mean it's been it's it's been kind of dismissed. it comes between the seventh, which is a great rollicking rhythmic colorful piece, and of course the ninth which is enormous, and, and then has the choir and soloists at the end as well. So it's a kind of a little baby thing, and people have often tried to dismiss it as being, oh, well, it's a throwback to, you know, it, 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 it couldn't be bothered. So he thought he'd write something in the style of Haydn and or Mozart and uh, see if he could get away with it. Um, and um, we started to approach it in that way, really trying to find connections in the music um, between the later 18th century, the Haydn and Mozart symphonies. But we soon found out that Beethoven is not to be trusted, particularly in what he says about uh, his own music. He actually said at one point that this was his favourite symphony. Um, You think, well, that's hard to believe. What about the fifth or the Eroica or the ninth to come? I mean, they're so different and massive. Um, So what did he mean? Well, I think what he meant was that this symphony... um, was going to be whimsical, certainly, slightly backward-looking in some ways, but every movement's going to pack a punch, which you're just not expecting. So the first movement starts out almost as if it could have been written by Haydn or Mozart, but then develops into something quite dramatic and forceful. So you're only a few minutes in, and you're thinking, just a minute... What's going on here? This is Beethoven's working himself up into his usual dramatic climax. And it has become a very powerful movement. We, you're lulled now and again into, I, into a, a false... What's it? I can't think of the word. Security? Yeah, sort of, because he brings in some lovely lyrical bits. But they're very soon trumped <laughs> by something more dramatic. So the first movement is not quite what it seems. The, the, the so-called slow movement... Um, isn't slow. It's a kind of a moderately paced, placed at Skirtsando and it sounds like something out of a French ballet. Uh, it's got a cheeky little tune, a little marching rhythm in the wind, and it has all sorts of sudden bumps and knocks and crashes which you don't expect. And instead of just fading out quietly like you'd expect a symphonic slow movement to do, it ends as if it was rushing helter-skelter at the end of a finale. A completely bizarre movement. The scherzo, which normally comes next, which is a very fast-paced one-in-a-bar movement, isn't a scherzo at all. It goes back to an old three-in-the-bar plodding minuet, or landler, almost like a rustic Austrian dance. So that must have been a bit of a surprise to the listeners at the time, because they would not have been expecting that. And that's quite delightful. It has solo parts for the horns, clarinet, Again the whole thing is like an evocation of a village dance. Like you sort of you, you went out onto the outskirts of Vienna during the new wine festival and there was a village band playing and everybody supping the new wine, a bit of dancing, and he kind of portrays this in a in a really comical way. And then you get to the last movement and you think, Ah, well this'll be bright and breezy. Nice tune, send everybody home happy. Not at all. The last movement turns out to be an absolute monster. The biggest movement of all. And although it starts off with a whimsical little theme, it builds up into a series of great climaxes. It goes through every key in the book. And I was (laughs) rehearsing this last night and a particularly awkward passive about a hundred bars where it passes through lots of different totally unrelated keys. It's like starting a conversation with somebody and then somebody comes in and interrupts you with a conversation on a totally different subject. It all works out in the end. But what should be a lightweight finale in a sort of Haydn manner? Clever, sophisticated, tuneful everybody happy turns out to be the most powerful movement of all and it's full of surprises and tricks and terrible musical jokes um well all i can say is that uh, if the eighth symphony of beethoven is not one that you know well and that you've always underestimated it prepare to be surprised
1: well, certainly it sounds it. What kind of, what part of his life was he in when he wrote this? It sounds like he was having quite a, quite an interesting time to be writing something <laughs> so um, patchworked and erratic.
8: Beautifully understated, Sarah, if I may say so. There isn't a, there wasn't a period of Beethoven's life that wasn't interesting in some way. This was a quite a depressing time in some ways. Um we're talking about 1811-1812. So it's what musicologists like to think of Beethoven's middle period. Um Beethoven's life unfortunately for him and everybody else falls into three kind of patterns, although so we're told. There's obviously an early period, the early works, a middle period, then the late works, which include things like the, the last string quartets and sonatas um, and the Missa Solemnis. These, these works are on a completely different level altogether, there's no doubt about that. The middle period works contain most of the works that we know really well, the, the piano concertos, the famous symphonies, of course, uh, and so on. The Eighth Symphony came at a time when, when Beethoven was taking a, his annual summer break in one of the outlying villages. I think it might have been Merdling. I'm not absolutely certain. I can't remember. I should know. Um, um, and he was a pretty, uh, quite depressed. He was quite low. When he got to this place, he found that there were very few people around you know he was he thought he was going to be with some sort of society as he normally was you know there'd be painters and poets and a few intellectuals interesting people um perhaps even some of the nobility will be having their at their summer palaces. And he will be able to mix and, and talk and, and, and uh, just relax in the summer. Um, but when he got there, he found the fact that very few people were there. And he was also, at that time, trying to recover from the the, uh, the, the most recent of a series of totally disastrous attempts at a relationship. Beethoven, being Beethoven, uh, was totally incapable of forming um, a relationship with a woman, and he desperately longed for one all his life it was just it was one of the it was a source of a lot of his problems He fell out with his sister over over a nephew and be, because he didn't know how to handle families and, be, and because he'd never had a family so he was desperate and he always chose highly born wealthy ladies, some of whom were already married, who couldn't possibly for all sorts of reasons return his affections and, and it was uh, it was in this period that he wrote the famous letter to the immortal beloved who has not been named and people have been trying to identify for, for years uh, without really nailing down who it actually was but it was obviously a highly born lady as i say probably married beethoven absolutely adored her he built her up and he wrote a letter to the immortal beloved. He never posted that letter. She never received it. Um, But the letter stands as a kind of a testament to how Beethoven felt about this particular woman. Now, uh, whilst he was recovering from this and feeling a bit neglected and all the rest of it, he wrote the Eighth Symphony. Now, that might account for some of its bizarreness, but it's very dangerous to sort of... uh, say, well, something like a really sad symphony or a highly emotional symphony is directly related to the events in a composer's life. It's nearly always a mistake. But you have to think there's something here. And He was kind of maybe to write himself out of this state of depression and disappointment. Um, I, I wouldn't speculate any more than that, quite honestly. Interesting piece written in interesting times.
1: Our next stop is The Launch of Ellen, a tale of contemporary art. The launch took place back in September and the and exhibition showcased a huge variety of new local art produced in response to the theme The Isle of Man. Isle of Man Arts Council Arts graduate intern Olivia Savage came up with this original concept, much supported by chair of the Isle of Man Arts Council Marlene Masker MLC. It's really wonderful to be here and see all of the hard work from the last year or so culminate in this beautiful exhibition. The book is here, and um, you know, we can buy our copies now. How are you feeling tonight? So many honoured guests as well. Yeah, I'm
9: feeling overwhelmed to be honest it's been such a journey to this point and I actually don't think I've myself or Martin who I've been working on this so closely with I don't think we've moved out of this room in the last (laughs) two weeks you'll find pizza boxes stacked in the background somewhere Um, but it's been so amazing and I'm just relieved that how well every artwork has come out and it wouldn't I mean it wouldn't be the exhibition it is
1: without the artists involved so it is really amazing and this is only the beginning. We've got um, a couple of weeks to come and enjoy this work. We can get a hold of copies of our books. The hard copy, we can request as well and put our orders in. So it's um, yeah, it's the beginning of a really beautiful journey. And something else that I love about these kinds of events, especially when it's open call, is watching people meet each other, network, talk about each other's work. It's It creates a real community. Yeah, definitely. And some of the artists have come up to me, particularly
9: ones that responded to the open call, who are fairly new artists. So obviously we've got our invited artists as well, who've been working for so many years. And some of the n- newer artists came up and said, I'm just pleased to be work- to be exhibiting alongside artists that I've known for years and years and years. And it's literally the same for me. I mean, growing up on the island, there are so many artists whose names I've seen on gallery walls. Um, across the island and I've gone I want to sell work I want to make work like them and sell work like them and now they've all made a piece for me tonight so I feel beyond blessed to have this many people respond in the way that they have I think it's amazing
1: You must be immensely proud of what Olivia's achieved in her short time as the intern and I mean what a turnout, it's a fabulous event incredible work
0: and it's all original brand new stuff. I can't tell you how thrilled I am, not just me but I know council are absolutely delighted at at the response, the quality of the work that we have today and the fact that we've been able to have this exhibition in place face to face and with such a variety of media and we've actually got visitors from off-island, artists who've come, Uh, for instance I know Michael Sandal, RA, is with us tonight which is a real boost, Uh, but absolutely amazed and uh, hope this is the first of many similar events in this space as well, it's just incredible that it's lent itself so well to having a major exhibition
1: Yeah, you're yeah, absolutely right and I know that it's been renovated in um, more recent years but the light, the space, it's just it's just perfect for it
0: It is and we're hoping, Council and the Arts Council team are hoping that now we have a creative area or a cultural area just outside of these doors. This is going to be a natural transition and a go-to space and increase the footfall and have external performances as well and exhibitions so I'd like to think this is just the beginning of a new future for the arts and, and creative arena on the island.
1: Michelle James takes us through to the end of the spotlight year now. She's joined here by Joff Witten to talk about brand new musical arts project, Kitterland, ahead of an event which took place earlier this month.
10: I'm part of a little musical arts group and we're showing a silent film and we're creating a score, if that's the right term for it, a piece of music For the film live in the moment And completely improvised So we've no idea what the music will sound like Before the event starts And we are hoping the music will sound and complement the film But we'll be kind of watching it at the same time as the audience And responding to bits as we see them Um, It's quite calm, I hope Maybe exciting in places, maybe a bit mad in places, but that's kind of the point of what we do.
5: And
2: you describe the music as using analog modular synths, Mm -hmm. looped guitars, and vocals. Yes, exactly. Tell me more. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Modular (laughs) synths.
10: Gets a bit geeky, this is. (laughs) So a lot of people have heard of the name, perhaps heard of the name Moog or Moog, depending on how you pronounce it, but M O O G, you might see in the t shirts. So um, it's kind of an old style of synthesizer. And so it's not digital, so it's not like a computer where you kind of press play and things just happen. It's you have oscillators that you turn on and then you twist dials and knobs to make them create sounds that you like. Modular means that you can take kind of outputs and inputs from various different places and wire them across different different things. So it's quite nerdy and quite technological, but it's kind of amazing the sounds they make. Um it's the early part of synthesis, so before the digital stuff kind of kicked in. So 70s style i suppose you might kind of put it down as um and then the looped guitars that's using kind of looping pedals some musical people might know of those but that's when you get a sound going into it you press a record button and then when you finish doing your sound you press the play button and then it loops just round and round and round on that moment mm-hmm. and we've synced and and organized everything so it's all talking to each other so all the, like the synths talk to the loops and bits and pieces so it's all in time um but then created live in that moment. So wow, my part within it is more kind of, I've got synths, but I'm more kind of guitar and vocals side of things. And then Tibor, my musical companion, he's more the synth and then guitar. So it's kind of a way we meet in the middle. I start with guitar, go to synth, and then Tibor goes synth, guitar, and we sort of meet in the middle. Um, but the joy of it is when he comes up with an idea and I kind of hear it and riff off it and then respond. And then he hears that response and kind of riffs off that as well. So it's it's really yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely to be part of. It's very meditative to be part of. Um, and it's quite long form as well, which is an interesting one because people expect pop tunes these days. They expect short little sequences mm-hmm, of music mm-hmm. and we're making long form music. So jams that Tibor and I have can be about two hours long and you've no idea where you're going to get to during that two hours but it's really fun and then you get to these points going wow this sounds like actual music that we're making Mm -hmm. you know that's really you know i creatively i find that really exciting and interesting
2: what led you to make the decision to put it in front of an audience
10: yeah that's a good question um I mean, again, it's about music and relationships with music. I come from a performancey sort of background, so you know, I've used to do bands and gigs, and I'd expect to be in a pub. I'd expect to have an audience watching me expectantly, and then play some songs, and they would start and stop and kind of go there. That's music, you know, that's live music. Um, Tibor his background perhaps is a bit more Mm DJ-ish. What we're doing now, it's really hard to think of a space where an audience would actually expect to hear the music that we're playing. You know, we could pick a venue in Douglas and, you know, on a Friday night, but it's it's not if anything it would just jar and spoil the atmosphere but sitting a bit quietly and in a space where you um, are perhaps expecting a a cinematic experience Mm -hmm. your mind is more in tune to that kind of like okay I'll relax, I'll let this sort of wash over me and kind of hear the development and hear hear as it grows. When I was playing a lot more music I used to do the looping stuff on my own but used just mostly guitars and I found the best places to play were the chill out rooms in kind of hard techno clubs at about 3 in the morning. It was a brilliant space to play it was very hard for me because I was just exhausted But these sort of people have been up all night dancing to hard techno, wanted something kind of mellow and long form. And I just loved playing in those kinds of environments because the audience was wanting to hear what you're playing. And I think as a musician, there is nothing worse than playing to an audience that doesn't want to hear the music that you're playing. You know, it's a really frustrating experience for both sides, I think.
2: Hmm. Absolutely. And so as an audience member you're both going to be able to watch the film and Mm. see Mm. the music being improvised, being devised around you. Will the eye be allowed to kind of flitter between the two?
10: Our our filmmaker colleague, Anthony Dalton, who he will be showing the film, but also will be trying to dress the set a little bit so there'll be something more visual around it. I would expect the eye to be mostly on the film, but then to see the musicians occasionally. And we're going to play with a space, you know, The art centre is brilliant in in, in Port Erin, and we've been been given the chance to kind of go and play with the set space before we do the film. So there will be a little bit of experimentation around that, which, again, is nice to use the word devising. It's sort of devising the experience on the day. And we've got ideas about maybe projecting onto other surfaces or projecting onto us or maybe some objects as well. So we, we, we hope it will be a visually stimulating experience as much as a you know, musically stimulating experience. And of course, the complete other side of this is that, you know, the, the event in Port Arran is all about the silent film, which is in itself just a fascinating thing because we don't, you know, we're used to cinema and we're used to kind of a pace of narrative that is totally alien from films that are made a hundred years ago because they didn't really have that kind of art, you know, that language of film completely embedded so we've been playing along to these silent films for a bit just kind of finding it really interesting and they're weird you know everything's a bit weird it's <laughs> it's almost a bit sort of pseudo theatre in a way because it's very facial expression rather than you know the subtlety of cinema that happened in the 60s and later and you know people reacting and kind go of like <gasps> trying to tell the story which I find amazing you know
2: and you don't know what film you're going to show yet.
10: No, that's also part of it. it, it you know, randomness and kind of um, improvisation is all part of the experience. And so we're going to pick the film on the day, and we're probably not going to watch it in advance either. We just pick it from a random wow. source. I kind of talk about soundtrack or score, and it's not necessarily. You know, people think score and they think of orchestral st- score, and it's very well rehearsed to the emotional moments. Ours is something more about it's a bit rubbish language but associated meaning you know we'll find a way of like that's interesting it's very snowy or very woodland and then we'll just use that as a bit of a way of influencing what we're doing so i hope i hope it's interesting for people i really like doing it and sometimes that's an, an okay thing you know i'm making stuff that makes me feel happy and makes me feel pleased and it's, that i don't mean that in a selfish way just in a it's nice to do that sometimes it's nice to make things that you're proud of or enjoy
1: team thanks so much to the presenters and our lovely guests who've made this year such a sparkly one against all odds we look forward to joining you again in 2022 with more creative goings on from near and far blend Vynor naughty you all as slen you